Starting in verse 4, I will read verse 4 to 8. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to understand the mystery of you, God. Christ Jesus, Christ in the flesh. Christ dying for our sins. Christ raised from the grave. Christ ascending into heaven. Christ our high priest, alive and willing to save those from the uttermost who draw near to you through him. Christ who is coming again to rule and reign in righteousness. Not to deal with sin anymore, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him and crying out in their hearts, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And Lord, we just ask you to breathe upon these four verses of Scripture so that we can understand what Paul was saying, how it applies to our life today, 2,000 years later, has, as not much has changed at all, Father God, in the schemes of Satan, in the reasonable arguments, Father God, trying to deceive, even if possible, the elect of God. So Lord, we thank you for opening up our eyes to the truth and understanding of this great mystery, which is Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an interesting portion of the book. Starting now and through the whole second chapter, Paul will be uh, really getting to the heart of the matter of why he wrote in the first place. This church that's standing firm, this church that has embraced the truth, this church that loves one another, this church that's witnessing the gospel is also a church that's under attack. And it's interesting when when we get into this text how We might not, or this church at this time, did not see the implications of the attack against them. They were entertaining some things as though, well, it's not that bad. It's a reasonable argument, and that's that's what the text says. Don't let anybody delude you with reasonable or plausible arguments. It sounds good. Maybe there's a place for this along Christ. And that's how things creep in. And before you know it, as John was uh, opening up in an exhortation before, it's not a simple gospel anymore. It becomes very complicated. It becomes very uh, mechanical. A methodology of trying to please God. So it's interesting that Paul writes this. And, but before we go into this and, and really analyzing it over the next couple of weeks, what was the content of their teaching compared to the Christian teaching, it's interesting to isolate just this uh, from the rest of it, just to see how well this church was doing. But it still had to be careful. I want to believe I'm doing well as a Christian, and that we're doing well as a Christian church, but guess what? we got to be careful. I've seen good men fall prey to bad teaching. It happens. 
promises of Satan sound like it's coming with the glitter of gold and everybody's going to get rich and everybody's going to do well and they run after something and what happens is that it never comes to completion because it's not a promise of God. So we all have to be careful. Each and every one of us has to be careful of what we listen to. So it's, it's always good to be on our guard. Uh, this church has the basics of Christ. The Christ that saves they're on the way to possessing what Paul calls here the full assurance. They don't have the full assurance yet. They don't own what we talked about last week, that full assurance, that, that confidence in Christ and that fruit of that confidence in a believer's life and that fruit of a confidence in a, a church's life in a world of competing ideas, in a world of competing ideas of who God is, who Christ is, what heaven's all about, what life is all about, what more morality is all about. We live in a world that's constantly competing for these ideas, and it affects more people than you think. If we look into the news lately, you will see issues of morality, issues of ethics, issues of religion, of spirituality. These are the things that are making headlines today, whether it's coming out of the Middle East, whether it's coming out of Baltimore whether it's coming from the gay and lesbian agenda, whatever it's coming from, it's coming. It hasn't changed. Morality, religion, ethics, it's all there. It's still on the face. When we have the full assurance of understanding to be able to sit back and listen to plausible arguments and let it fall off us as Teflon because we can see that it has no binding truth to it. It doesn't point to God. It doesn't give God any glory. That's why Paul calls it the traditions of men. Their birth in a sinful mind. It's not the mystery of God, which is Christ. If this church life, if this church was without interference, it'd be well. Paul could just leave it alone and said, just as you would receive Christ, walk in him, everything's going to be fine. That's what he could say. But there is an interference. This trouble of a, a, a deceptive kind has entered into the church. These plausible arguments based on human traditions. As I said, this section from 8 to 23 gets to the heart of the problem. We're going to go over it over the next several weeks. But I do want to look at these, first, at these four verses we're going into tonight. Before we get into everything else. I want to break it down. Verses 4 and 8 are the intentions of a, a false teacher. They're the intentions. I will speak about that. And then verse 5, 6, and 7 are Paul's exhortation to remain firm, to stand firm in the faith. You're doing well, just don't let anybody delude you. They're out to get you. It's hard to believe that we're that important, important that someone's out to get us. But guess who's out to get us? Satan's out to get us. We really think that Satan sleeps. We know that God does not sleep or slumber. Guess who else doesn't sleep or slumber? Satan doesn't sleep or slumber. He's out to get the church because the church is the body of Christ. He thought he held the head down when he was crucified on the cross. He really thought, now I got him. I got him. I got him. He's dead. And I have the power of death. He's dead. Little did he know that there was a resurrection coming. And he's hated the body of Christ ever since. He hates that we're born again. He hates that we know the truth. 
and he tries to deceive the church. To understand these verses, I will do. Uh, I'm going to do it through a word study tonight. The first I want to speak about is verse eight, and that's the opposition's goals. Listen to verse eight. This is where it starts. Starting in verse eight, he tells this church, "See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it. Make it your goal and your ambition." Not to be deceived. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, and not and according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's interesting that this word uh, "take captive" it's a, it's a military term. Paul uses the military uh, analogy many times and metaphor many times in the New Testament, but. Here, to take captive is a, a, a military term. And the literal Greek translation says that, see that no one shall be carrying you away as the spoil. Military. One army comes, defeats the other army, carries the other army's goods, takes them as spoil. And that's what Paul's saying here. Make sure that no one takes you as their spoil. Make sure no one comes and takes you and holds you captive. And we can see the demonic influence here. Because if you control the mind, you control the person. These are the brainwashing techniques of the cults. I was watching last night, I've seen this one before, in Charles Manson. And how he was able to wash the brains of these young people to the point of murder. You know, it's, it's, it's... it's mind-boggling how you can fall under a spell. Remember what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3? Who has bewitched you, Galatians? You were running so well. Did you receive the spirit by works of the flesh? Or, or by, by hearing with faith? Who's coming to bewitch you? Who's changing you around? Why are you deserting Christ all of a sudden and, and chasing a, a strange teaching? Why? Because they were bewitched. Seducing spirits, the teaching of seducing spirits. People can really, if we're not on our God and truly and generally know the truth and the purposes of God for humanity in Christ, we can easily be persuaded by other things if we're not careful. So we can see the demonic influence here, the control of the mind, you control the whole person. And that's what being held captive is. Being held captive is when... What someone believes about God in his ways. This is how it works. Let me give you an understanding of the brain-twisting techniques of the cultists. All right? They get someone to listen first and foremost about what they're saying. They have to have a listening ear. Once someone has a listening ear, what they try to do is the point that it's from God. That's, that's the first connection. First connection is you have to listen. It has to sound reasonable, a plausible argument. They're making a stand for God. Then someone starts to entertain the thought that this is God's teaching. That's the second bad step. Once they believe it's God's teaching, now here's where it goes. Once they start obeying it and doing it as though it's a commandment of God, that's when the person's mind becomes twisted. 
Because their actions are following their thoughts. Their thoughts are following that they believe it's God. Paul, uh, Jesus says that an hour is coming when men will, will kill you on be, on, and believe they're doing it on behalf of God. And this is how perverted it gets. It can really twist the brain. So when Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you, don't let anybody take you captive, please understand, he's not saying, do me a favor, keep your ears open. He's saying, make it your ambition not to ever be deceived by a plausible argument and the traditions of human. It sounds right, but it is wrong. It is wrong. So ultimately, the basic problem is theological. And it goes back to the Garden of Eden, did God say? You put doubts in people's minds. You think, well, God did say this, or God didn't say that. So we can assume rightly that what a person believes or don't believe about God, let me say that. So we can assume and, and rightly assume that what a person believes or don't believe about God will determine the state of their mind and the outcome of their character. Being held captive by defective teaching if a Christian follows some kind of deceptive teaching, sooner or later it's going to stifle their growth in Christ-likeness character. It's going to stifle growth for those who are saved. But if you're not saved and they're following it, then it condemns those who are not saved. You can be saved and follow some strange teachings. See it. See many, many people follow strange teachings. And they don't grow in Christ-likeness. The only way you're going to grow in the love of God, you've got to love God's Son. You've got to understand God's Son. Going back to verse 4, they do it this way. Alright? The object is to take captive. They do this by deluding us with plausible or reasonable arguments. They make it sound good. They get your attention. This warfare is not just spiritual, it's intellectual. Words are used by way of a plausible or what sounds reasonable. Well, it's only reasonable to sinful and unlightened minds. That's all it is. They're trained in the art of spiritual double talk. Listen to how the message says this. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into the endless arguments that never amount to anything. They're always learning, but never come to what? They never come to the knowledge of truth. People love the talk. Love the talk. The Jehovah Witnesses are out again. It's this time of year. You've always seen them out. And they start with, do you want to go to heaven? Or the new heaven and the new earth. And they're all over the place. They've got a text from the Old Testament, a text from the New Testament. And after 20 minutes, you might get a little bit of Jesus in there. But that's about it. The whole mystery of God is Christ. But yet they don't speak about Christ. And when they do, he's not the son of God. So we have, watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. It is intellectual. We have to understand that. A basic question needs to be asked at this time. How do we know if something is gospel truth? Do you need to be trained for many years theologically? No, and I'm glad someone said that. You don't. Everybody here, there's two things you have to realize, and you can smell that there's something wrong. There's two things. One thing, if it's complicated, it's not God. I'm telling you now. 
If you've got to sit there and put it together, if you're a born-again believer, and they're going on, and they're going on, and they're going on, and it's going nowhere, I can tell you now, it's not of the Lord. It's simple. It's Christ. Uncomplicated. Pastor John spoke about it before. It's the foolishness of Christ preached. That's all. Just Christ preached. Crucified for our sins. That is all. Raised from the dead. That is all. That's what changes us. And we're going to find out. That's exactly what changes us over the years. It is not complicated. Second, it has to highlight at all times what Paul calls God's mystery. And we know what God's mystery is, right? It's Jesus Christ. That means it has to pass the person of Christ, his deity, and his humanity. It has to pass the perfect work of Christ. A perfect work of Christ means this. Salvation, full and free by faith. Period. That's how you can tell if something's from God. Is it pointing to Christ? Is it pointing to his humanity and deity? Is it pointing to his hanging on the cross and dying for my sins once and for all? Is it, is it talking about being raised with him spiritually as I'm born again and now I have the Holy Spirit in me that changes me from the inside out? Is it keeping it simple? If it's keeping it simple, then chances are it's true to the gospel. If it's complicated and it's running circles around you and it's spiritual double talk, it's not of the Lord. That's how you know. And every Christian, whether even if you're a young Christian in the faith, you can understand these things. And what happens now is the natural transformation of the character of the Christian from this one truth. Christ alone. That also takes place by faith. Did you know, I mean, how many people in this, in this room still want to change parts of their life? Or want God to change parts of their life? Well, all our hands are up, of course. Do you want to, do you try harder? How'd you get saved? Did you try to get saved? Did you hear the message and what? You believed. The same thing with sanctification. Yeah, there's some things we've got to do, but it's not much. It's really believing that Christ will change us from the inside out. That's how we're changed. We ask. We cry. We plead. We show remorse. We show tears. We confess. We ask for help. But you can't do anything. You can't jog for it. You can't do gymnastics for it. You can't uh, work harder for it. You ask. That's how we change. And this leads us to verse 5, 6, and 7. Paul's exhortation to continue doing what they have been doing. Living by faith in Christ alone. That's what this church has been doing. Let me tell you something. There's nothing glamorous about this church. They had a simple message of a simple Savior that was simply changing people's lives from the inside out. It was working. It was really, truly working. This faith alone was really, really working. And this is Paul's counter-military argument. I'm going to read it. Verse 5. For though I am absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Good order and firmness are interesting words because they both have a military definition to it. Good order is only used twice in the New Testament. Once here 
and in Luke. And, and here it has the meaning of something fixed or people fixed. It means place in the line of battle at an appointed time. That's what it means. Place in the line of battle. Good order. The only other place that's used, it's interpreted on duty. And that's in Luke 1 8. I said 118 to Jackie, but 18. Let me read it. Now, while Zechariah was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, it was prearranged. He was in good order. This church is in good order. Paul wants to see their good order. Something good is going on. Paul is saying that even though I'm not there physically, I am there in attitude. For Paul to see and to hear the Christians standing strong, what we would call today, they were standing strong in Christ alone. These are the, the, the false, the five solas of the Reformation. This is scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone and by faith alone. That's what this church was doing. There was nothing added to it. They were just God alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone type of church. Where's all the entertainment? It's too simple. But yet, this was their Christian marching orders. They were in line. They were in battle array. They were arranged, in place by God in this community, in this place, in this portion of the world. They were standing firm on Christ. They were shoulder to shoulder. They were toe to toe. They were rank and file, all standing behind Christ and nothing else. And it was all for the glory of God. To Paul, and I hope you don't miss this, this was a sight to behold. A sight to behold. A church standing against a culture of competing ideas about God, about morality, about life, about Christ, and taking captive every philosophy that stood in its way. No matter what competing idea entered into the church, they said no. No, it's Christ. It's Christ alone. It's faith alone. It's not based on works. We can't bring anything to the equation. Christ saves us and Christ changes us from the inside out. Period. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are these strongholds, you might ask? We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, or raised against the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is a church that won't stand for anything. But Christ. You know, in the Reformation of the 1500s, when under Calvin's preaching, what began to happen was this, this, this great revival of religion. And most of it was coming out of Catholicism. And what they did is that they would go into the churches, the cathedrals, and they ripped out the confessionals. They ripped out the crucifix. The, the crucifix. They ripped down the, 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 the altar where the mass was, and they ripped everything out. They ripped out all the statues. They threw it all away. They cleansed it. They, they tore down everything. 
every lofty argument that was raised against Christ. They tore it out. They, they ripped it from the inside out. Until the only thing that was left was Christ and his gospel. In a pulpit. That's all there was. There was no added attractions. There was no deceptive arguments. There was no traditions of men. It was all ripped out for what it was. It was lifting up itself against the knowledge of God and his Christ. Listen to the way John the Apostle expresses the same truth. 2 John 1.4 I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. John hears in his old age of Christians still walking in the truth, still holding on to the faith. And he rejoiced. And I want you to know something. As you grow older as a Christian... I pray that you see the value of someone else walking in the truth. I pray it warms your heart to sit back and realize this is a man that just doesn't talk about Jesus. This is a man, this is a woman, this is the church that rejoices and walks in the truth. And I'll tell you what, you're going to see less and less and less and less of it. As the years and the decades go on, People who want their ears tickled will turn to anything but the true gospel. It's going to be hard to find one day. This is why Paul says in verse 6 and 7, Therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, or continue to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. They received Christ by putting faith in Him personally, as their personal Savior, as their personal Lord, and God's personal Messiah. They heard the message of Epaphras, the faithful minister, and they were taught concern in Christ. And they embraced not just Jesus, but they embraced the teaching of Christ. They embraced the simplicity of Christ. They embraced Christ as Christ Jesus the Lord, Christ, God's Messiah. Jesus, God's Savior, Lord, God's King. They embraced it all. They understood under the term Christ Jesus, the Lord, everything was given over to this one man, the resurrected one, Christ Jesus, the Lord. He reminds them they were bought with a price by Christ Jesus, the Lord. And they were rooted. Means they were born again on the inside. Something had happened on the inside. Paul pointed them to their born again experience. Paul pointed to them when they came out of darkness of serving dead idols to turn and serve the living God. He reminded them you were born again. Remember how you used to worship false idols and false gods all the time. But now you've been born again. You know the true, real presence of the living God is now within you. He's taking you out of the darkness. He's rescued you and he transported you into the kingdom of his dear son. You're rooted. You're there. Something's planted in you now. And now you're being built up. You're being built up in him, he says. They were built up in him as a tower of moral and spiritual stability and spiritual strength. You see, we're rooted on the inside by the spirit of God. But we grow on the outside and it shows what happened on the inside 
begins to show on the outside, being built as an edifice that you can see. We see some incredible structures in Manhattan, but how many have seen the foundation? Not many. The foundations rarely get any kind of uh, praise. But it's the foundation that holds the structure up. We're rooted on the inside by Christ. We're being built up on the outside in Christ. In his nature. Christ-like nature. Stable. Solid. Unshakable. They will become increasingly stable in their faith. Well, what does that mean? You see, they weren't double-minded. Immaturity and unbelief are always characterized by instability. Always. Double-mindedness. They don't know. They're still young in the faith. Is he it, is it not? Is he in the desert? Is he in the wilderness? Is it Christ alone? Is it works? Is it the Sabbath? Is it, is it pork on Sunday? Is it, and, and they're young. And they're, they're unstable still. They're a little bit double-minded. But as we grow, as we're rooted in Christ, or Christ is rooted in us with a new birth, and we'll be built, built up on the inside, and shown it on the outside, we become increasingly more stable in the faith. We can hear error and not be afraid. We can pinpoint it and say, brother, that's error. That's not of the Lord. I love you, but that's not of the Lord. I'm free to eat pork on Friday. I'm not condemned. If I eat, I'm not condemned if I don't eat. I'm not condemned if I wash my hands before dinner. I'm not, well, my wife will condemn. I don't blame her. She trained me well. I'm being stable with washing my hands. I want you to know that. But double-mindedness often characterizes not just unbelief, but someone who's still growing in their Christian faith. And And last but not least is the fourth thing over here Paul talks about in verse 7. Abounding in thanksgiving. And that is really the whole Christian message. Abounding in thanksgiving. You see, listen to what Warren Worsby says about this text. A thankful spirit is a mark of Christian maturity. When a believer is abounding in thanksgiving, he is really making progress. And I love that because really... I mean, both in scripture and both in my own personal life and, and, and sharing my Christian life with many other Christians over many years, it's the, it's the thankfulness. It's the constantly growing aware of what Christ has done for us that produces an inner thankfulness. That's why 25 years later, I'm still loving the Lord. It's out of a thankful spirit. That's why I'll serve Him until I go home, because it's out of a thankful spirit. That's why a Christian does anything. With any kind of longevity. It's just purely out of a thankful spirit. Produced by Christ alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. For the glory of God alone. By the scriptures alone. That's all we need. That's our remedy for progress and success and stability in a world of competing ideas. This is how the Christians stay stable. We continually learn about what Christ has done. The mystery of God which is Christ. Our heart can never ever be too much in thanksgiving to God. The heart is created by God to hold as a receptacle deep, deep gratitude for what Christ has done. You never get to say, yeah, I'm too thankful to God. 
you know, I'm going to stop being thankful for God. You know, enough is enough. Too much glory to God. I'm, I wasn't that bad of a sinner. Now, let me tell you something. The more we learn about Christ over the decades of our salvation, the more we realize we were great sinners. All of us were great sinners. Not just a prostitute, not the drunkard, not just a murderer, not just a slander, not just the, the thief and the criminal. All of us were deep, deep rooted in sin. And those who are forgiven much, love much, are thankful much. So that's why we keep it simple at all times. And that's what Paul is saying here. Stay as you receive Christ, as you simply receive the mystery of God, which is Christ, his gospel. How he died for you, how he rose again for you, how he saved you. Salvation is full and free. You repented that you're a sinner in your need of salvation. You accepted Christ by faith. You were rooted with the Holy Spirit. And now you're being built up in Christ by this simple message. You've got this thanksgiving that's abounding. It's, it's more and more and more as the day goes on. Abounding over here is the imperative. It's constantly going on. And it's going on and it's going on. And that's what changes you from the inside out. That's the heart of New Testament religion. That is Christianity. Don't let anything get in your way, no matter how reasonable or plausible the argument gets, no matter how much they go in detail, he's going to say about visions and the worship of angels and, and the Sabbath and the new moon and the washings. Don't, don't get caught up in any of it because he ends this whole chapter with this. It has the sight of wisdom, but it is no good in the indulgences of the flesh. You want to change? Keep it simple. Keep your eyes on Christ. Don't complicate it. Be thankful for everything he's done. Be thankful for everything he's doing. Be thankful for everything he's going to do in our life. Because that is what changes us from the inside out. Amen. It's important in our application, we'll close with these two things. That is, as Christians in the church, we have to recognize ourselves as soldiers of the truth. Everybody's enlisted in the army. And we all have to be careful that we're not taking captive by plausible arguments that people, even in the face of truth, they don't care. They'll, they'll try to convince us otherwise. Defending the truth of God's mystery, which is Christ. And the thanksgiving is the heart of the Christian's change into the image of Christ. Let us never get away. And we're gonna, Paul's going to get into this in verses 9 to 15. We'll speak about this next week. Of how simple the gospel message is. How simple the gospel message is. And when we get water baptized. And we're baptized in Christ's death. And we're raised to the glory of God. That is what we're rooted into. And that's what we stay close to. All our Christian life. If we lived a thousand lifetimes. We never ever get tired. Of being baptized into Christ's death. And being raised in the resurrection our spiritual resurrection. Father, we thank you. We thank you for every good and perfect gift that comes from above, Father God. We thank you for the mystery which is Christ. I thank you, God, for condescending yourself and coming here as a man, as a servant, to take on the form of a suffering servant and, yes, even dying on the cross for us, Father God. I thank you for everything your Son has done, Father God. I thank you that the simple gospel saves Faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. Uh,
for the glory of God alone and the scriptures alone. I thank you for that, Father God. I thank you. This is what saves. This is what transforms. This is what keeps us. This is what keeps us safe. It keeps us stable, Father God. I thank you for this message that even a child can understand. Thank you for taking all the complicated jargon out. And I pray for all of us, Father God. Give us all ears and a discerning heart that when we come across even well-meaning Christians with their reasonable and plausible arguments about something or somebody, Father God, that we can just simply say, it's Christ alone in Jesus' name.